You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Munro Hardy has been a busy man. At just 35 years old, Munro's career has taken him from fencing croc-infested rivers in the top end, to mustering cattle from a helicopter, to boardrooms in Sydney, and most recently around the world as a Nuffield scholar. It took a bit of convincing, but we managed to wrangle Munro to sit down and share his story. In this episode, he tells tales from the gap year that took him around Australia and all the adventures that came with it. Make sure you keep your eyes peeled for parts two and three to hear all about his helicopter mustering escapades and why he chose to leave the territory for the big smoke and how it led him right back to where he started. Munro Hardy as I live and breathe. We made it. We made it to a podcast recording. It's only taken three years, Steph. I know. I I usually start the episode with an interesting story or something, but I just wanted to kind of call you out in front of everyone and let people know that (laughs) I've been trying for three years to get you on the podcast. And when I first invited you, you also said no. (laughs) But guys, persistence pays off. Yeah, you said I'm writing a book and I've got to save all my stories for the book. (laughs) (laughs) How it will come back to bite you in the bum. But yeah, we have been trying to line this up for so long, not just for the last couple of years, but since we both moved back to Catherine last year, Munro is a little bit of a jet setter and some might say an overachiever. He's doing his Nuffield scholarship. So, when he's not running the property that that you've got in partnership in Catherine, which is cropping, cattle, you know, kind of a quarantine depot, you just keep being overseas. And so it's always a text message of me being like, Hey, Munro, if we do your podcast next week, you're like, sorry, in New Zealand. Sorry, in Africa. Sorry. Like, where are you going next? You go away tomorrow. Where's that to? At New Zealand. That's tomorrow, New Zealand. Actually, okay. Yeah. And then, so I was just like, okay, if we don't do this today, then when are we going to do it? And so we've decided you're away for the next couple of weeks. Then you come back for three weeks and then you're away for two months. Where are you going away in those two months? Well, that's with Nuffield again. And that's for our global focus program. So we're traveling as a group. Um, starting in Singapore to Japan, uh, Netherlands, and then finishing in the States. Oh, with a stopover in Israel. Forgot Israel. Oh my gosh. And then, so I was looking at it and I was like, okay, we've either got today or there's about three weeks in April we can work. Otherwise, you get back about three weeks before I'm due to have a baby. And I know I've got a lot of episodes to record between then, but I just don't know how good I'm going to be at that point in my life. So, oh my God, thank God. I almost pushed back coming out today. So, thank God I didn't. I didn't realise you're going tomorrow. <laughs> oh my God, but I'm sure you'd manage that. I'm pretty right. sure you told me you were going on Saturday, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's only Wednesday. Either way, I'm here. You can't escape me. It's happening. So. Here we go. Here's oh, the that- agronomist. Does she need a quiz? Hi. Come on in, come you in. come in. Oh, how lucky for you. The agronomist has just rocked up, so you get a five-minute break. (laughs) Gotta go. How are you? All right. 
right. Well, that was a close call. You almost got out of it. Tried my um, hardest. Munro just popped out of the room for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes with the agronomist and it's hot outside, guys. So, I stayed sitting right here and I was like, I'll just be here when he gets back. He can't escape me. Came back inside and here I was. It's actually probably cooler outside, Steph. I reckon this aircon doesn't really keep up in here. Oh, I thought it was just on fan. I didn't realize you had the con on. <laughs> Might have to get that system looked at, buddy. But all right, so we're here. I've made a pretty big deal about it. Um, now, because it was such a, oh, my God, I finally get to do a podcast with Munro. Haven't done as much prep for this as I usually do with other episodes. The one thing I do know is that it's going to be at least a two-parter, probably a three, four, who knows. There's a lot of stuff you've done, a lot of yarns. And we're going to try to fit it all in before I fit out a baby. <laughs> so anyway, so let's get into it then. I'll stop, I'll stop waffling on. I'm going to ask you a question I start off a lot of these episodes with, which, um, as you've listened to all the episodes like twice, you should know what that is. Munro, what were you like as a child? Were you this avoidant? Oh, look, I was, um, I suppose I was a pretty quiet kid. Pack it at home. We grew up in Apsley. Apsley had 100, maybe 200 people in the local district, farmers. Um, we had a, a pub, a cafe and a post office and a school, school of 32 kids. I remember in our, in our biggest year at one point. Um, yeah, I think I was a good enough kid back then. I behaved and then, uh, went away to boarding school where I learned to play up. Yeah, I, I was big into sport. I used to play hockey and footy. And then, um, at school there in, in Hamilton, a boarding school, I, I had a, a cyst removed from my foot, Steph, and it put me in a cast and on crutches for, I think, 23 weeks in, what that's, was that? Grade seven. So I would have been that's 11. That's like six months. A long time. Yeah. It was very brittle, fragile bone in my foot. So it took a long time to recover. And of course, that meant missing out on a lot of hockey, a lot of footy. Um, and, uh, I suppose I, at some point turned, uh, my focus to other areas to get my entertainment and turned into a scallywag. Really? Can we have a, just a little exit of what kind of, uh, mischief you'd get up to? Oh, I was about to I mean, right how page. much mischief can you get up to when you're in a cast anyway? Oh, you Plenty, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember one night we had, um. We had fireworks on the on the footy oval out from the boarding house with a couple of us spread out around the oval and uh, letting fireworks off at different intervals so that um, our boarding house master couldn't catch up to us. We'd light one on one side of the oval, he'd head over there, and then we'd uh, light one on the other side and he'd head over there and we'd scatter in the meantime, never to be caught. I think it's reasonable for most people to expect that if someone's in a cast and off one of their legs for six months – it'd be a pretty good way of keeping them out of trouble. It's not what you would expect to kind of lead them down the dark path to getting into trouble. No, you probably would think that. Yeah, it makes no sense at all, but I had to find other ways to keep up. Oh, so maybe that's why you end up in the Territory because there is that one day of the year where you can let off as many fireworks as you like. Yeah, well, we always have a good cracker day up here. <laughs> so were you off a farm in Victoria? So it's Victoria as well, is that – you're saying these town names and I'm just here smiling and nodding going, yeah, I've heard of that place. Yes, yeah, no, in Victoria, in the West Wimmera, so west of Horsham towards Narracourt in South Australia, in mm-hmm. southeast, Coonawarra. 
No, but I've been to Narracourt, so that's all right. That and there's place. a lady on Twitter called Wimmera Chicks. I've heard of Wimmera before. Oh, right. Don't well, know who I she is, but there you go. hello if you're listening. All right, so you are off a farm? Yes, yep. Well, it's on a farm. Oh, true. <laughs> well, you were off when you went to boarding school, I guess. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Look no, at us. We've gone farm. delirious we're, from um, the heat. Yeah, crazy as we had uh, merino sheep down there. Um, uh, it was a reasonable holding for that sort of area, I suppose. We had a couple of thousand acres at one point. And, uh, yeah, kept coming home through boarding school till I was 18, finished school, and turned around and changed direction, came up this way. So when you say, obviously, before you became a scallywag, you said you're a bit of a quiet kid. Were you pretty hands-on on the farm or were you more of a kind of stay inside, I don't know, video games, board games, books kind of kid? Or were you like out there mustering, like revving up your 150 bike and kind of being a big tough kid? Yeah, no, no. We uh, weren't the kids to have have that stuff at home. We had to go to the neighbours or to a mate's place to to see the, uh, the old, what was that, a Nintendo 64. Super, Super NES. That was a thing. Um, I remember that. Uh, no, no, we had the motorbikes and, and the toys that, that, that take us outside, I guess. Um, yeah, school holidays after that too. Coming home from boarding school, we're always helping dad with the sheep work, shearing in the shed or whatever was needed. What were your thoughts in high school? You know, did you see yourself coming back to the farm or were you looking I'll tell at you what it another was, career? Steph. For me, I, I loved it. I loved growing up in the bush and I loved being on the land. And I'd always been steered away from it, to be honest. A lot of people give you that advice, like, don't go into farming. It's a hard life. It's, it's hard yakka, hard to make ends meet. And I suppose, you know, you can understand in those times where that was coming from because, you know, there had been hard times in, in those past couple of decades where you couldn't sell sheep. You, you know, people were shooting their sheep in our region because they couldn't, they literally was no market for sheep. National wool price collapse, all and of that. Interest rates of the late eighties, early nineties, and the exactly, yeah, all of those things. Yeah, a hard time. And for me, I mean, I love the bush so much, and subconsciously always wanted to be there. I think would have loved to have gone home too and taken on the farm, but with all of that advice leading me somewhere else and telling me to go up other directions, I suppose I'd, I'd been focused on that in some ways uh, throughout my career. Um, Focused on business and, and learning, uh, which actually turns out to be brilliant advice. So I have been able to get away and grow my networks and constantly learning as much as I can and developing, growing. But after what's it been now? 15 years since I left home or more. Um, I've still got a love for the bush. I've still got a love for agriculture. And I've been able to bring all my learnings to that. Um, and so I think ultimately I, I was meant for it. I was meant for ag and here I am and loving it. This is working out. This whole winging it thing is working out so far because I didn't know any of these things about you. So kind of leaning towards more business studies, what was the plan after year 12? Like go to uni then and become an accountant or? Definitely not accountancy. Um, they get such a bad rap, hey? Yeah. Well, I mean, being encouraged to explore other things, um, at school, and you know, we had careers advisors at school and all of that. Um, anyhow, I, I remember speaking with a careers advisor probably year 11 when you start to focus in on what you should be studying so that you can get into the right course when you leave school. Um, I actually wanted to be a pilot. Really? My granddad was a pilot. He used to take me to the air shows and I, I fell in love with it and thought, oh, that's going to be for me. I really want to do that. So are you thinking like, 
uh, Australian Air Force or still does my head and how like Top Gun is to do with the Navy and not the Air Force, but, you know, we'll just say military or you're going to be the Mr. Qantas man that gets to wear all the little badges. Oh, look, no, let's there. probably go more more Top Gun for yep. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of those things had a had a bit of an influence. But, yeah, not knowing much about it, you know, we started those conversations at school and said, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to be a, a pilot. And my careers advisor said, oh, no, no, son, not for you. No, 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 you've got to do maths and physics and all these bloody tough subjects that I wasn't doing. And uh, so he put me right off it. I, I put that off the list. Um, and he said, no, no, you should be a farmer. You've got to go farming, mate. <laughs> wow. Mm. That's a – wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're not smart enough to be a pilot. Better go into farming. Uh, try and find a harder occupation where you have to have physics, science, chemistry, business, and 20 other skill sets. My word. And I'm a lot that simpler right to be a pilot. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in livestock production for a long time in the cattle industry up here. Um, but now getting into the farming side of things and biology and chemistry, whew, getting back into that now. So you're kind of getting mixed messages then from your parents and then from your, your guidance counsellors at schools. You must have must have been a confusing time. It was indeed, yep. So and I then just of course you're just a young more. fella that wants adventure. So yep, young That's and about in your prime. About, yeah. So you thought I'll go north. Yep, yep. We'll get away from all of that and uh, go and do my own thing for a year. Um, the careers advisor had persuaded me to apply for some courses. So you know everything from your Marcus courses to um. Ag- agriculture courses. In the end, my top pick was UNE, Ag Science, believe it or not, um, which I got onto. This is moving ahead a bit now. I got into Ag Science and within three weeks I decided to pull the pin on Ag Science because the science part I just couldn't keep up with. So I moved into Ag Business. Um, but that was following my year off after I went up north. Okay. So that's, first of all, that's impressive because I think a lot of people go up north for their gap year and it's really bloody hard to come back down south after it. So it was. tell me about your year up north. Where'd you go? What'd you do? What oh, mistakes well. did you make? Um, well, as a kid in my summer holidays, I worked as uh, what we called a bunker rat at, at Grain Corp in the grain receival bunkers. Um, so I'd probably done that for three or four years and then in that final year after school, um, did the harvest, had enough cash to buy a ute, bought a dog and thought, right, I'm out of here, headed north. Got my ring a starter kit. Yeah. Did you exactly. have a Cooper and a swag? I did have that, yeah. I did and I, and I needed it, turned out. I didn't know where I was going. I had a direction, not a destination. I was heading north. Did You didn't have a job lined up? No, no. Oh, my God, that's brave. No. That's also brave of your parents. Were they like, oh, my God, you're going to get murdered? <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. They probably were thinking that, but they let me go, which is good. It was good fun. Back in those days, we didn't have the old iPhone. I had a bloody old Nokia 82, 80, what is it, 8310, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, I remember sitting on the banks of the Edward River one day in a camp chair in the water mucking around with a dog in the water and I dropped my phone into the water. And, you know, you probably think that's not such a challenge. Now you just go and get a new iPhone, back up from the latest latest backup and away you go, you got the same phone. But back then you couldn't find a phone in Denny or wherever it was. And, uh, and so I spent weeks without a phone, which meant I had to go into town, use a pay phone if I was going to call anyone. Didn't want to call home because I didn't want to let them know that I – Hadn't got a job yet, hadn't hadn't lined myself up and, you know, was 
I wasn't struggling. I was enjoying life, but certainly wasn't where I wanted to be at that point. Um, yeah, swagging it out in the bush and uh, I was uh, flicking through the local rag, looking at jobs, and it actually took me a long time. Didn't find anything down there, so I, I kept floating north until I came across um, a yard building job just for a labourer for what was meant to be a couple of weeks. Um, and this, oh, I don't know when this was, what time of year, it would have been January, February, I guess, um, which, uh, which extended for maybe six weeks, led into a cotton harvesting job then. So I went down to um, near Moree, Western Moree Gras, I think we were, out there. So, um, yeah, did a cotton harvest and, and at that stage I thought I'd better line myself up a job up north and so I got fair dinkum about it and, and looked at the corporates and, and looked at the pastoral game and uh, sent in a few resumes and ended up landing a job with AA up at Rotham Park. Um. And so that started, that just coincided with the end of the cotton harvest, which worked well, moving into sort of first round muster at Rotham. I've heard of people telling stories about kind of travelling around Australia, nomadic like, you know, picking up work here and there, but never somebody who's fresh out of school. And the first thing that came to mind when you said you didn't have a phone for like a month and you wouldn't call your parents because you didn't want to let them know what was going on, well, you didn't call them, but you had no phone. They couldn't call you. They probably thought you were murdered. Your, <laughs> Mrs. Munro's mum, you poor thing. I'm just – Munro's going to send you a bottle of wine. It Let's probably go. wasn't a mad step. I'm probably exaggerating or lost in translation oh, there. But long okay, enough, yeah, please. A week or so. Give your mum like a day and she's probably like got the police onto you. Actually, once I didn't call my mum back for like 12 hours and she did call the police. <laughs> That's for another episode. Uh, and also just – to have the confidence and the to be comfortable at that age, there's no way I would have hacked travelling around and figuring out where to stay, how to budget my money. You know, I just wouldn't have been comfortable, not necessarily scared, but probably comfortable in my own company at that age. Like that's really – I find that really interesting. Oh, I you love just it. kind it of cruising around yeah. like a grey nomad. That was freedom, you know. It- Go wherever you want. I'd, I'd camped along the river for a long time, along the the, uh, the Edward River there, and just loved it. Um, How, so I was like I wasn't in a hurry. Turning eighteen year old. Yeah. What do you mean? How bizarre. Must that, have been that's a bit weird. Then. Let's be honest. Um, oh, it was just a holiday on the river, camping on the riverbank. Wow. I just feel like that kind of makes you a bit of an old soul. Like, oh, I guess you I could mean? say that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, anyway, take us back to Rotham Park because I just – the way you tell the story and what's happened just makes me think that you should be in your 30s and you've just come out of a career and you're looking for a life change and a bit of a, you know, tree change, midlife crisis kind of thing. Not, you know, not a 17-year-old just cruising about. I don't know. I just think it's cool. It was cool and I loved it. (laughs) Loved it. Um, Rotham Park, though, that was a, a different world. That was really stepping into a different world. Um, that was completely new to me. I arrived there late in the afternoon or evening even. I think when I pulled up, um, it was just after dark and didn't know where I was headed really. I, I was pulled up under a great big mango tree, didn't know which house was the main house or the dining room or oh, any of that. Story of my life with every single station I've ever driven into, <laughs> even driving into Carbine the first time. So much anxiety. I hate it. People, please put signs up. Can be a bit awkward, big, can't it? There's always a big sign, visitors must report to office. 
then there's no freaking sign that says which one is the office. Uh, yes, good point. Yep. Yeah, we don't have that here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I better get that sorted for you. <laughs> no, and they didn't at the park either. So, um, no, I, I walked in through a gate and saw a number of people almost in a line heading out of one building and heading towards another. And so I, I sort of wandered over and said, g'day, g'day, g'day to a few people that walked past and didn't get much from them until someone stopped and said, uh, how are you, mate? Can I help? And I was after the manager and he pointed me in the direction. Um, turned out that I all just had dinner and we're heading to the social club for a beer. And so anyway, I went to the manager's house and introduced myself, said g'day. And I suppose it was pretty informal and, and hadn't actually spoken to the manager before. It was almost all through email. Um, saying, yep, you've got a job, come to Rotham Park by this date and we'll get you started. And so they'd planned a muster for the next day and I was sitting there with the manager and the head stockman who was who was Brett Wilde, who a lot of people I know. Really? Show. Yeah, oh Wildy. Oh, God. Wildy has, I think, agreed or doesn't know he's yet agreed to do an episode. I'll get him so, on here. He'll have some good yarns. What a small Don't ask world. him about Rotham Park and me, though. I'm just oh. Too many good yarns about that. First thing, special episode. Oh, embarrassing. All right. So anyway, him and uh, Dave were talking about the the next day, planning, getting ready, and um, thinking about what they could get me to do. And Wildy asked me, he said, oh, can you ride a horse? And when I went up north, one of the pieces of advice I was given was, if anyone asks you if you can ride a horse, say anything but yes. Because if you do, you rock up, you're a bit cocky, they go, all right, mate, we'll put you on the roughest bucking stock we got and thankfully i didn't say yes i said oh well, you know i've ridden in the past few years ago i haven't ridden for a few years now so nah nah can't ride a horse and he nodded and said all right no worries well we'll just uh we'll put you in the counter tomorrow and then um we'll get you going from there put you in the what sorry in the counter yeah good point i didn't know that at the time either what's a, a counter a canter canter so like a side by side no well I, I didn't know either at the time. I do now. Is so, this a Queensland thing? No, not at all. No, no, no. It's, uh, well, the next day, rocked up early, early in the morning, um, and everyone were getting their horses ready to go. Uh, saddles in the truck and nose bags, giving, giving the horses a feed and whatnot. And then the truck headed out to the paddock. We followed in this dual cab ute truck, whatever you'd call that. And uh, anyway, I got out to a bore and we started unloading the horses and saddling up. And then I said to Wildy, I was like, oh, where's my, where's my horse? Have I got a horse? What am I doing? Didn't have a clue what I was meant to be doing. And he's like, no, 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 you're right, mate. Um, we'll get these guys ready to go and you just take the canter. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't ride a horse, let alone bloody canter. What? I don't want to do that. And uh, anyhow, it turns out a canter is a truck. It's a dual cab truck, like that little oh. bit bigger than a ute but smaller than a truck. Yeah. Was it like a little body truck for the horses? Not for the horses. No, loading okay. gear. Yep, yep. Um, oh, you could probably yay. put a, you could a, a gooseneck on them. Yeah, okay. I know, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so my job for the day was to follow the mob in the canter, basically. So we had a long walk and um, I was just going to tie up and, and put any calves on the back that mm-hmm. were, you know, your little potties that wouldn't walk. Um, so, yep, following them all along and I'd, at, by lunchtime I probably had four calves on the back. And anyway, this first day was just extraordinary. I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, we had a, a big wiener that was playing up 
And I could, I was watching everything from behind the mob. I was 100 meters back or more. And, um, this wiener broke out and took off into the scrub. And one of the girls chased it on a horse and started bending it around back towards the mob. And then it would come back and it was actually coming straight at me, full gallop towards me in the canter. And, um, by the time it got to me, there was a girl called Kate on her horse galloping behind it and right in front of me she reached over the neck of her horse, grabbed this thing by the tail, reefed it over and it just tumbled, tumbled, tumbled and stopped right beside my door in the canter. While that was happening, she threw her leg straight over the neck of the horse. horse was still galloping and jumped off, landed on the ground, had a belt off in no time and tied this wiener up right next to me. Never seen it before, never knew that was a thing, and I could not believe it. I'm so jealous because I've always wanted to do that. Now I'm too old. Like, all the properties I worked on when I was younger, that wasn't a thing, and now I'm old. Well, and I'm pregnant, but I'm old. And by the way, people will be able to hear that. That's rain, isn't mm, it? I'm, I'm trying not to uh, recognise that at the moment. Oh, my. Oh. You don't want rain? No. Ooh. Make hay while the sun shines, they oh, say. Oh, Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, yeah, <laughs> Look, we just off, finished. Oh, my God. I was like, at first I was like, oh, no, that has the aircon kicked in and gone crazy? No, it definitely still hasn't kicked in. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, that was just a random intense little shower, as you do. And I was like, I really thought the wet was over. That's cool. Yeah, That's- so that was my introduction to stock camps in the north. You must have just been like, I mean – first day like you're just kind of watching it like on a movie screen because you've got that big truck in the in the uh, that big window in the cab of the truck like just watching everything play out like a movie and yeah did you when she did she kind of like look at you afterwards and be like all right now put this in the truck like she did exactly that <laughs> yeah she's like all right we'll um we'll have to tie this one up to the truck because it was too big to to lift onto the back um so, so yeah we, how do you get it into the truck then well it's it's just got a tray yeah. On the back, this canter. Yeah. Um, but it's got rails around the back where you can tie a rope. So we, oh, make we it a, walk alongside the truck, you mean? Yeah, put a head oh, rope or a halter on it. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then, and then got him to walk. So I'd just idle along and this thing's just walking along with me. But after a couple of hours of that, it got jack of it. It just got sick and tired and said, no, I'm not going to walk with you anymore. <laughs> I'm going to lay down. And it was perfectly fine, this young wiener. It was fit and healthy and he was just playing up, just sulking. Anyhow, I'd, I'd bounce out of the truck and go and stand him up and say, come on, mate, let's go walk. And he'd walk again for another 20 minutes and then go, no, nah, done with this. And he'd do the same thing, lie down. Every 20 – he sounds like a toddler, to be honest. Uh, you know, when like a when a kid just kind of throws himself on the ground and then they're really hard to pick up as well because they're dead weight. Like that must have made it a really slow muster. You've, gone, you've gone from flat-out excitement to just being like chief babysitting your – that's exactly what it was like. Yeah, it was a long day. So from then on, I could not wait to get into a, into a saddle then. So, so could you ride? I guess that's the question. No, not at all. Oh, okay. No, I was hopeless. I didn't know a horse's head from a freckle. Um, <laughs> is um, freckle a youth? Is that a Victorian thing? Oh, I didn't know. Freckle means something else? Or? Use the other word I was thinking of. No, that, well, no, I think we all got the visual, but I just hadn't heard that before. So. It was freckle, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it is a Victorian thing. Yeah. South of the border, that's all right. I still can't – I know I know. I don't want to keep banging on about this, but again, when you were just talking about rocking up at Rotham Park, again, I just keep thinking like how were you 17? I know people – it always just fascinates me how people are so different at different ages and different stages of life 
But even now, you know, there are people, and and I'm not saying anything is right or wrong. I'm just, it's just different. But you can have 17 year olds whose parents drive them to the station and stay for a week. You can have 20 year olds whose parents will drive them up. Um, I can still be, I was still well into my mid twenties and I'd rock up to a job and be like, <gasps> freaking out. And you're here, you are 17, just rolling up like, Hey, uh, can I see the manager? Like what's going on? Like the, the confidence and the, I don't know, the confidence really is just really getting me that you just. And, no, and, and the maturity as well, because you've just come out of boarding school, which some people would say boarding school makes people grow up faster. But on the other hand, you've got people doing like your cooking and cleaning and stuff like that. And, and you, yeah, you've, you're away. So I can see how it would make kids quite independent, but you're also still young and like, no, it's just. Um, yeah, well, independent. I think I was usually independent as a pup. Yeah, um, it sounds like you were. Remember my brother, he was three years ahead of me and he went to boarding school. At, at Hamilton first. Um, and I remember when he had his interviews with the principal and whatnot and was ready to go, whatever age that makes me, I was probably eight. I was ready to go then too. I said, oh, can you take me as well? But they wouldn't, obviously, till, till secondary school. But yeah, I couldn't wait to go. I love doing different things. It's always a new adventure. Loved it from a young age. It's just really, I guess I just don't come across it that often and it's really. I hate using the word interesting because I think it's used far too often and just kind of has lost its meaning. It's really interesting. It's good fun. There you go. So, Rotham, how long did you stay? And then again, even honestly though to you, just saying, you know, saw an ad in the paper, got a yard building job. Like even these days, okay, maybe not these days. I've grown a lot. But when I was younger, oh, my God, that would have terrified me. And then, you know, and going somewhere and I would have been like, Mom, Dad, is that okay? Do you think I should go here? Like, Again, just look at you just off doing your own thing. But anyway, I've got to stop banging off. I will bang on about that the whole episode because I'm just so – I'm just like, what? what? Um, Rotham Park, how long yes. were you there for? How, how did your adventures go? Um, I, was, I was about to say not nearly long enough, but I suppose with all things in the world, it probably was just long enough for where I needed to be doing what I was doing. Um, at the time, it all worked out well. Uh, but it was – it was an introduction. It was maybe three months there. That was when – AA co-owned it and they sold to Great Southern. So Great Southern came in and, and then I think contractors took over for memory but a few of us moved on at that point and that was my opportunity to come to the Territory which is something that I'd always wanted to do, probably a bit sooner than originally planned but um, worked out really well. I headed up to the to the floodplains at Melaleuca on the, on the Mary River which at that point in the year were just receding enough to be able to get out and do a bit of work. That's when they... Crew was cranking up, so um, yeah, there was plenty of work on up there. Were you aware at the time? I don't even know if you're aware now. Perhaps that the Mary River is the most um, populated river in the world when it comes to crocodiles. Like it has the most. It's the most. I don't know the nice way to say it, it's the most infested. Like there's a significantly higher proportion of crocodiles in that river than anywhere else. I am very aware now, Steph. <laughs> but at the time, you're right. I had no idea. No idea. I remember fencing. Neck deep in oh, water. Are you serious? Yeah. At no. The, oh, you'd know no. the Shady Camp Barrage. No. There's a fence line that goes down into the water there. What? I had no idea. I was told to go in and fence it, so I did. By yourself? On high tide. I had someone standing there with a rifle over I, my shoulder. I, yeah, a lot of – fat lot of – oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was pretty hairy. We're so lucky to have him on the podcast, guys, because you should be dead. Oh, my God. Okay, keep going. It's one of those things, I suppose. You just you 
trust. You don't even question. Yep. No oh, th- ignorance is bliss. Because mm. if you had known, f- the, excuse me, if you had known, bugger, the uh, the fencing job probably would have taken four times as long. Because yeah, or uh, would have loaded, <laughs> would have waited till low tide. I reckon that might have been a better idea. Oh, I just wouldn't. You- <laughs> Not funny, but like. Imagine being the employer and something happens and then you have to answer to what is the what are the mob called? Like not work health and safety, but that work safe. Work safe, yeah. Imagine having to fill out your work safe reports and they're like, you know, did you have your toolbox meetings? What did you do to assess and mitigate the risk? What were your plans in place? They wouldn't have a leg to stand on mm. because you'd have no legs left. <laughs> like Oh my god. Okay. So wow. Well add that one to the bucket list. How far how long after fencing were you? Did you become aware of the Mary River and its um, population? Oh, probably be in the in the coming days. I would have thought. Oh. Yeah, we ended up spending a lot of time down there on the barrage, flicking lures, catching barra, and spotting crocodiles. Oh my god! Mm, plenty of crocs down there. Crocodile corner, they called that one where we were fencing. Good Just Lord. male crocodile, shoulder to shoulder, all down the riverbank, as far as you can see. Blech. Okay. So, what what was the job there, aside from um, death by fencing? Yeah, that was it, death by fencing. Is that the whole job, fencing? Like- yeah, we fenced and fenced and fenced. Yep, so as that water recedes off the floodplain, the water's been sitting over the fence for a long time. Um, there's this olive hymenacne grass that grows. It's like a vine almost. It's It just grows over the top of the fence and smothers it, so... We fenced and we were cutting off this home and acne with, with fencing knives. Well, fencing knives, don't know what you call it, cane knives they were, um, so that, one, you could actually see the fence. And a lot of the time you're in knee-deep mud, like it's still wet, it's still drying up, but you've got to get the fences up as quickly as you can so that you can get cattle on to utilise that floodplain for as long as you can. Um, yeah, and at, at the time we had a, a program on where we were building a new laneway system for the station. Um, so we did a lot of fencing. Did you ever get to do anything a bit safer and more fun, like muster cattle or, or, I don't know, something that didn't involve crocodiles? There were those jobs, yeah, of course, yep. We, um, yeah, we we went through the mustering program. If you make it out alive of fencing, we will reward you with some cattle work. Yeah, yeah. Well, at that time too, they were adjusting a lot of cattle on there. So when people were mustering through their first round uh, a bit further inland, They'd muster and, and send their wieners up to us and we'd put them on the floodplain onto this green feed. So we were walking cattle to their paddocks a lot. Um, had a lot of buffalo there, so we mustered buffalo and processed them through the yards um, and then fenced and fenced and fenced. I'm just, I'm not going to lie, you've thrown me off off my line of thought, my line of conversation because I'm just quietly, or not so quietly, horrified. <laughs> I mean, I've always said that flood fencing is my least favourite job. I had to do it a fair bit um, at Yari Station in the Pilbara and I, that was nothing, nothing compared to what you just said. And then I also thought I'd found something worse to flood fencing when I worked on a ranch in Wyoming. I had to go fix fences that um, instead of being underwater, they were under snow. So I had Ooh. to clear away all the snow and then because it's so cold, it snaps oh, the wire. Right. And I remember sending a video to Yari being like, oh, I thought flood fencing in 45 degree, you know, March heat was crap. Like, check this out. It's yeah, negative I'd 20 take outside. Plans, I think. No, well, no, nothing's going to kill you. Well, yeah, nothing. Frostbite. No, thanks. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, okay. 
So was this also where you went bull catching in the territory or was that another time? That followed this, yeah. So in the back of my mind I had 12 months to go and see as much as I could up north while I could before I went down for my ag science degree. Sounds like you should have done a fencing degree. You probably could have. Oh, I think I, I got one out. done. Yeah. <laughs> in record time. Um, no, but that was good. It was great experience. Do you, the property you're on now that you lease with your business partners has a river running through it, a pretty significant river full of little bitey or big bitey things in it. Do you have any flat, like river crossings to fence here? Luckily, we don't. No. Oh, God. No, it's it's our sort of southern eastern boundary, um, and so we're fenced inside from the river, inside our country, and quite a way off it. So our fence is very rarely flood, and there's not a great deal to pull up because of the river, which is okay, cool. Cool. So yeah. we stay out of the water in this one. Yes. All right. Cool. Sorry. Back to your back to your bull catching, and you. Oh, you said you had as much to see. Yes, as, yeah. as you could in that short period of time, and and while you could, while you were still making it out of a out of out of life, out of each job, I guess. Yeah, well, then um, I suppose through that work up around the Mary River, we and we moved around a bit too. We used to go and give neighbours a hand and and whatnot. Um, but met quite a few people locally doing that, and there was um one guy who was starting up his own contract camp, uh, going bull catching, and he'd spin a few yarns to me every now and then, and, and made it sound pretty exciting. And so I had a yarn with my manager and he said, absolutely, mate, go and go and have a ball doing it. And it sort of worked into his program of it just fitted in. And so it would have been late September or October, I suppose, we headed off then. Um, and down towards the Daly River, um, out towards Pepinati, so fairly out in rugged terrain. And anyway, it was undeveloped country and, and fairly rangy, rocky sort of stuff. Uh, and I, I crossed the Daly River in my ute and beyond that there were no tracks. And so I was told at one point, like I, I came in in my ute and met these guys halfway out. I just followed this track. They, they gave me a bit of a mud map to follow. Uh, and then I met them on the track at some point in the afternoon and they said, all right, let's pull up your ute here. We won't take that any further. We'll just take the catches and the gear that we've got because it's pretty rough ahead. And so we just stashed my ute in the bush for the next however long we were going to be out there in camp for. I didn't know. And so we all piled into one Toyota, um, single cab, and I was in the middle with my knees up around my ears and we got cracking through the bush, bouncing around the cab and, and one of the blokes next to me said, oh, mate, do you want a beer? I said, oh, all right, yeah, I'll have a beer, love a beer. He reached behind the seat and this is an old busted Toyota. And uh, behind the seat there, he pulled out this silver tin of beer and there was only at the very top was a little gold lip. The rest of it had been completely worn off and this would have been, you know, in the middle of the build-up, which is a 40-degree heat out there. That beer wasn't in the fridge. It was under the seat. And anyway, here we went straight into the over 4X gold, but they'd been there long enough that they'd rubbed all the, all the paint off the tin. I've never seen that before. It was right. A whole... They did their cans look the same, or did they have a special initiation? Can no, no, that was them. That's just how they lived. They loved it, and it was as hot as a cup of tea. Wouldn't do it again. <laughs> oh my gosh! Were you at any point during this whole year moving around, doing different jobs, doing you know meeting different people, different environments? 
all these different situations. Was there ever a time when you were like, no, I think I've got this one wrong or, oh, my God, what have I done or any any sort of doubt or second guessing or were you just like, never? hell yeah, next adventure? Next adventure every time, yeah. Opportunity knocks but once, they say. That is true. And I guess to be young and you've got no debt and no commitments and no – Anything else holding you back, um, you've just got the whole year to go on adventure before you have to follow through with, you know, this commitment of university. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, doesn't oh, doesn't it make you want to go back and kind of do that again, though? Almost does, but it's quite, quite an adventure here at Carvey Park, too. Yeah, but just imagine right if you could have the adventure. I'm just thinking, it's like, oh, my life with a mortgage. Like, you know, when you don't have any of those things, you know. Yes. There's no yeah, timelines, yeah. no deadlines. You're just doing what you want. Like. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yep. Just one big adventure. And well, did you it, have your dog with you the whole time? Yeah, I did. Yep. Yep. He loved it. Well-traveled dog. Blue healer he was. Yeah. So, Very well-traveled dog. Yep. Took him down the West Coast after that. So, I'm guessing a bull catching. I mean, we can't move on to whatever your next job was without a few bull catching yarns. Oh, I do have some bull catching okay. yarns. Yeah. Uh, where do I start? Where do I start? Oh, well, I suppose... Initially, when we did pull up to camp, it was it was literally out the back of nowhere, no track to it. So we're pushing through long grass to get to this camp that was on the on the bank of a little creek, freshwater creek that was running through there. Um, and it was a pretty in, impressive setup. We had some tarps hanging between some trees, and underneath that was our camp kitchen. The bathroom was in amongst the pandanus. So when I found the shower, they actually had a, a poly pipe running from the waterhole, a little. Um, Little Honda pump for your for your shower that that would pump up. We actually had a shower rose in amongst the the pandanus and the leaves. You can picture a pandanus with all the leaves mm-hmm. poking up. There's your soap holder, your toothbrush holder, the toothpaste all in there. And so that yeah, it was a pretty good camp. We were that there. Actually, sounds pretty flush. Yeah, it was nice. I was like, hey, you had water pressure. <laughs> yeah, little swimming hole too. Freshwater swimming hole was good. No freshwater visitors in there. Well. I didn't expect it and me being a little bit naive back in those days, uh, I was actually told one day um, when two of the guys had taken a load of cattle to town, we'd caught these bulls and so they took them into town in the truck and they said, right, you have a day off. Um, and they said, oh, there's a water hole just over there, feel free to go for a swim. So I went for a swim. There was a pair of goggles hanging in the tree and a snorkel and a bar of soap and I thought, oh, you beauty, this is this is safe, this is good. And... Um, Went for a swim and uh, ended up lying on the bank, sort of, it was quite a shallow sandy bank and I was on my back with water almost up to my chest and my head in the sand behind me and I just sort of shut my eyes for 10 minutes or so and when I woke up and opened my eyes, there's no word of a lie, my my feet were in front of me just cracking cracking the surface, I could see my toes and right between my toes... With these two little eyes, this freshwater crocodile just right looking right at me. And by Jing goes, did I move? Leapt out of that waterhole. But yeah, you know, he's not there to have a crack. He was just inquisitive, just seeing who I was, what I was doing. Are you trying to send me into early labor <laughs> in this podcast? Oh, the amount of people that are comfortable swimming with freshwater crocodiles, you know, I remember being out at Calgita and then whoever was out at Liveringa and, you know, oh, no, no, with this part of the Fitzroy, it's just freshies, it's fine, it's fine. No, 
I don't even like sharing the water with fish, like the ones that come and suck on your toes. Like, no, no. And I'm pretty sure, where was it? There have been, there are freshies that can be made. Wasn't there one, a little freshie in Fitzroy with the recent floods and it was on the news, like it was just roaming the streets of Fitzroy and they were trying to catch it and it was like, like really mean. I didn't they, see that. And I'm pretty sure people have been it. bitten, maybe probably not severely, but they can get, no. Yeah, we've oh got one out, out the back here in this waterhole. How, how oh, far is the waterhole from the house? A oh, hundred yards down there. Um, I don't want to walk that far. <laughs> I could have sworn it was a salty. It was massive. It would have been. Oh, well over two meters long. He was, he was thick, and I didn't know that freshies got that big, but apparently they do. And then, yeah, no, no. Okay, cool. Wow. All right, there you go. Yeah. At least, at least it was a freshie. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. But what do they say? If it doesn't have taps and tiles, don't swim in it. Yeah, pretty much. Something that I've safe, learned. safest place to swim is somewhere that has taps and tiles. Yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> oh gosh. Okay. So. Out bull catching, we've had a crocodile story. What about a bull story? Yeah, all right. Um, Probably the safer of the two, let's be honest. We as had, dangerous as they are. I had another guy working there. Uh, his name is Esau. Sammy. Everyone called him. Uh, and anyway, we'd, we'd been out catching bulls and, you know, I suppose there's nothing new to that. People know what goes on there. But at the end of the day, once we'd had a few bulls tied up and, um, we trucked a few back to the yards. We were on the way back home and it wasn't far from sunset, I'd say, pretty late in the afternoon. And we came across one more bull and we thought, oh, we'll have a crack. And we'd left some gear out there in the paddock and we're all coming home in, in one of the catches. So, um, there was a fellow driving. Sammy was in the passenger seat and I was standing on the back, hanging onto the roll bar. Anyway, this bloke decided to have a crack and was following this bull through the long grass and, me standing on, on the back of the ute or back of the catcher, I could just see the back of this bull. He was a big bull and the long grass, you know, was sort of smothering him. So it was, it was pretty hard to see. Uh, and anyway, we were right up behind him and he tripped up at one point in this big buffalo wallow in a, in a hole in the ground. And he, he tripped up and tumbled out the other side. And then we went into the buffalo wallow, which was dry and came up the other side and we were pretty precarious coming out of it. We were only going maybe 20, 30 k's an hour at this point and came out and it felt horrible. It was scary. We were right up on our side and one wheel had come off the ground and I was in the back thinking, oh, God, here we go. Clipped the back of the bull as that happened with our front wheel, which did push us over. We went over sideways. And so I got spat out way out on the flat and I rolled sort of 20 metres, but the other two were still in the Toyota without a roof. It's just got a roll bar. Um and the bloke who was driving actually had a, a fake leg and wasn't all that manoeuvrable for him. It got stuck under the pedals in there. So he's actually hanging. Toyota's tipped on his left-hand side. He's hanging from the pedals from his leg, unable to get out. And Sammy, I don't know how he got away, but that roll bar clipped him on the back of the neck and nearly pinched him on the deck. And anyway, he got up and he, he walked away from it, but it was pretty frightening. Anyway, he must have actually pinched something in his neck. He did some, I don't know, not serious long-term damage, but it was enough to pull him up for a couple of days. Didn't really realise until we got back to camp. I suppose the adrenaline kept him going, but the next day wasn't there at Brecky, And so I went to go find him in his swag and he was out in the bush. And uh, I went and went to see if he was all right. And he was awake and I said, mate, you're right, you're coming up and you're coming to Brecky," And uh, he said, oh, no, mate, I'm... 
Fuck it, I can't move. My neck's crook. And uh, I thought, oh, gee, that's no good. Are you right? And anyhow, we, we looked at getting a, a care flight out to him. Um, but by then, like the year that we had, it was a day trip to get back to the station and into town if we were going to go grab someone or, or make a phone call to come pick him up. Anyhow, he said, no, 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 I'm right. I'll stay here. I'll just I'll come to work tomorrow. Anyway, same thing the next day. He was still crooking his swag. And I went to see him and I was, I was bringing him Tucker. And he said, oh, no, still crook, mate. And he goes, oh, did you, uh, did you hear that crying baby last night? And I said, what? No, I didn't hear a crying baby. What do you mean? He said, oh, no, just out in the, out in the bush. So I couldn't see it, but I could hear it, crying baby. I said, no, mate, didn't, no. Anyhow, he kept saying he was right. He'd get up and poke around camp and just say, no, no, I'll, I'll come to work tomorrow or the next day. And anyway, the next day following that, the same thing again. He was still crook, still sore, and he said, that crying baby came out of the bush last night with, with mum. Like Mum was carrying the baby, walked up to him and just stood out in the shadows, just out in the moonlight. He could just see her. Baby was still crying, and he was just in his swag, making eye contact with this lady with this baby, which was crying. He couldn't get up, couldn't do anything. And then she turned around and walked away. No worries. So then the next day I went back and he told me about that. Um, but the following day he was up and about, good as he was right as rain, like nothing had happened. And I said, Sammy, what, what's going on, mate? You're right. And he goes, yeah, I'm right now. And uh, anyway, this lady walked out of the bush again with the baby that the baby wasn't crying. And he watched her the whole way walk out of the timber, he said, straight to his swag. She bent over, put her hand on his neck, which he said was as warm as anything. Um, and then she waited there for 30 seconds, got up, turned around, walked away. And then the next day he was right as rain, like he'd not been in an accident at all. I don't understand what that was about. But there's some things that we don't understand, but uh, it's it's interesting culturally, I think, when you when you meet people like that and, and hear the experiences that people have and what gets them through. I'm so glad that we don't video record this podcast because the, the facial expressions I've just been pulling throughout that whole story. What the heck? Oh, my. When you first said a crime, first of all, when you said you were standing on the back of the, on the buggy, I was like, safety staff here. I'm, I'm little Miss OHS Queen, WHS Queen. Bad Monroe. Don't ever do that again. Anyone else, don't ride on the back of a U. Don't ride a bike without a helmet. Don't do any of this crap. You're very Absolutely. lucky. Absolutely. That's why we're um, these Also, anyway. ouch for old mate with the, the, um, prosthetic leg that was, must have been, yeah, that he's hanging from. Oh, that sounds um, – and then when you said the, the baby crying, I was thinking uh, one of those – you know those birds that – I stayed at um, a place up on the floodplains a couple of years ago, Swim Creek. just like that. And you know those birds that Curly. are like – Yes. Yeah. Because I had never heard of it before or anything and I was staying out like a little ways away from the homestead and walking to the toilet, like the outhouse at night in the dark with just my phone because someone didn't pack a torch. And I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, so I was like, oh, he's just going to say it's a bird. No, that's so – and now I want to know, is this woman and child she, – that could be. Could be. Like, could be. Absolutely. Oh, my God. It's about as remote as you can get, so How possible. bizarre. But yeah. I know they are very spiritual too, so yeah. – Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's incredible. I'm very, very lucky that that turned out that way for him. Again, don't do silly things like that. Yes. Oh, 
my God, if I ever catch you. Life lessons. I'm like, oh, if the crocodile, the first crocodile didn't kill him, the second crocodile didn't kill him, then standing on the back of the bull catcher like an idiot didn't kill him. You, you've got a, I think you've gone through some of your nine lives, Monroe. Like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suppose um, found some of the wildest cabs you can and learned what not to do, what to steer clear Next of. Next minute, but. I'm going to come out here and find you doing st- something stupid with the PTO shaft or the tractor. Absolutely not. You, you make will sure not. you roll up all your sleeves and take off that bracelet and that watch when you're near it. This is uh, no long ponytails for you. No, what not to do? Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. So for anyone listening, this happened a long time ago, and he's very lucky. And do not try this at home. Exactly. Right, Monroe? Okay, yes. Good. Do you have a a safer bull catching story before we trundle along? If it's any safer, <laughs> I love that. Just go for it. Well, the we're bull, already the bull there. catching Let's finished. There was a timeline, I guess, because uh, we were fighting the seasons. In the end, we were trying to catch as many bulls as we could to, to clean this country up before the wet came, and it was hot, hot and humid. It was my first build-up, and it was staggering. I reckon the last three weeks of it didn't get a wink of sleep through night because it was just so hot. You're either, if it's that hot, you take your covers off in your swag, but then the mozzies are that bad, you get hounded by mozzies. So Mm -hmm. it's either no sleep by heat, humidity and sweat or no sleep by mozzie. Um, so anyhow, we're fighting the wet season. Rain was coming. We had a few storms in the afternoon. Um, and then one point a a monsoon was building. So we had to get out of there and we packed up nearly overnight. Um, I remember the call was made that, yep, we're going to get out of here. Otherwise we'll get stuck on the wrong side of the river. And so we all worked pretty furiously to pack up some portable panel yards and the kitchen camp and all of that sort of stuff, threw it all in the truck and and my job was to drive one old body truck out of there, get it back across the river. Anyhow, it was late in the afternoon when I took off and this, (laughs) I don't know what's it was an old Bedford-style truck, very old, had no lights, had no radiator cap, no windows, no windscreen and and it was just a putter along sort of truck. And anyhow, ran out of daylight but was driving by moonlight with no lights and no track, of course. There's no graded road, a very, very thin track. And ended up venturing off that a couple of times and got bushed and have to, you know, I was on my own. There was no one else with me either. The rest of the guys were catching up because they had lights, so I had to leave earlier. Ended up on foot, had to double back and go and try and find where this track was and, oh, it would take me hours to find the track again and eventually got there before the next morning at least. Anyway, we sort of, it's a lot of reversing in between the timber and hitting trees and, you know, we're just idling along so slowly. Um, but that was, that was the exit from it. That was the pack up, got across the river, um, ended up getting my ute out and it was just in time, you know, where you're driving across. It was coming up at that point. So got out just in time and then enough to, when was that? That was probably start of December and started floating sort of slowly making my way back home. So, this whole year you've been away, it sounds like you've taken everything in your stride. Nothing's really phased you. Did, at the very least, this impending monsoon and needing to get out by a certain time, getting lost on the track, did that give you any sort of anxiety or or worry or were you just kind of chill throughout that whole process too? No, no, no. Deal with it as it comes, I think. 
I'm so glad we don't record this on video. The looks <laughs> on my faces. I'm like, is this guy for real? I would have had a full blown panic attack if I, I do. If I, if I'm going on a track through a paddock and I lose the, the two tracks and, or, or whatever, I, you know, or you go into a bore and then copy back out of a bore, you can't find your tracks. And I'm like, well, where are the tracks? Meltdown, life's over, start filming my final goodbyes to everybody <laughs> like it's all over Red Rover. I just love how you're like, yeah, cool, whatever. And so it was that, so you said you started kind of making your way home after that. Is that where this story then leads you to? I know we already kind of had a spoiler alert that went home to uni, but obviously that didn't. Um, yeah, didn't quite get home like I planned. I was, I was going to go touring after this, go and see yeah. a bit more of the countryside now that I'd seen a, a little bit of the north, had a, a brief introduction. Pretty wild, hearing introduction. But, yeah, started floating down the West Coast um, through Broome and where did I get to? Uh, Denham, Monkey Mire. Oh, yeah. Uh, and bumped into a guy there who was a friend of a family friend. There was some connection there at some point and yarning away and, and said that, you know, I was on my way home and wasn't working. And he said, are you looking for work? I know a bloke who needs some people. I said, oh, I haven't got long. I'm heading to uni. Whenever that started in February or something, and uh, he said, "No, give him a crack. There might be some casual work." And so I did, and it was um, it was a drilling mob out of Kalgoorlie, so I had to get myself down to Kalgoorlie and work then as a driller's offsider. So we we were based in Kalgoorlie, or the the company was, but then we packed up all our gear and headed north again up to Mount Magnet, just northeast of Mount Magnet, I think we were, and um, RC drilling. We were. Looking for gold. And so that was, yeah, that was an incredible experience. And very different country. And thank God no crocodiles. No crocodiles out there. I'm no. sure you found something to try and get yourself killed though. No, well, it was, it was cold. Believe it or not. I didn't think it would be. Yeah, it really was. We had cold mornings and, and sometimes we'd have a, you know, we might be down 300, 400 meters drilling and we might. Like yourselves physically? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I was like, whoa. Six meter. Drill rods and then yep. drill it on the end, and you just punch down rod after rod after rod. Um, but sometimes you mightn't get the hole done that day, and you you pull up at the end of the day, and you still got all your, your string down the hole. Uh, but in the morning, you need to blow the hole out, and overnight it can fill with water. Um, and so anyway, blowing it out. This is when I learned it was bloody cold. My memories of it being cold. Anyway, we'd blow it out, and you would get covered head to toe every morning. When this cyclone's got air going everywhere and the water rushes out of the hole, covers you in black, silty water. And the days are hot, but, you know, it doesn't heat up till 8 o'clock and there's a howling wind and there's freezing water out of the hole. Oh, they were rough days. What an adventure, though. What a wide, like a huge amount of country you've covered because even just travelling from the Territory down WA and then across to Kalgoorlie, even just doing that touring like for fun, you're seeing so many different types of country type. But the time you've spent in each of these places and the variety of experiences, like you, you've you got different roles, you're in different industries, you're seeing different things, like it's just – like that's a – it's invaluable. Right? Yeah, it was it was yeah. terrific. I loved it. Um, I love new things, new people, new areas, new places. Uh, and I've, I've, even the years to follow, I still I still did a lot of that. I know that's why it's going to probably – I'm looking at it and I'm like, 
this is probably going to be like a six-parter at this point. Like, there's just, there's honestly, guys, there's so many things we can talk about with one. Like, you've been, I've been everywhere, man. I've done everything, man. I promise never to sing on the podcast ever again. Um, you've just done so many things. Like, I feel, yeah. Well, that that was sort of a bonus to the end of the year, that one. Um, Did you find gold? Oh, we found plenty of gold. Really? Yeah. Did you get to keep any? Like a no, token no. Of, it no? comes up as a, as a dust. Oh. And, in fact, we barely ever saw it. It was the the geos on site who were testing. Oh, yeah. They'd get sent back home and yeah. tested in the lab and whatnot. How did you find – when you were at Rotham, were you out in the stock camp? Yeah. Uh, like you guys went like out to camp, sorry? Oh, occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably most of the time when I was there, we were mustering to a main yard, so we were back home most nights. Most nights, okay. Yeah. And then you had Maluka, where – was that a lot of camping out or kind of based at the homestead? No, that was homestead based. Yeah. Yep. All right. Then you've got your bull catching. You're camping out the whole time. Yeah, that was and three months in this way. When you're out um, drilling, was that camping out as well, or did you have like little dongers on site, or that was camped out? Yeah, yeah, that was. Because I'm just thinking of the the vastly different people you come across in those that become, you know, your colleagues, but also your only option of friends during those times. And and something I've always really loved about working in central and southern WA, like on the in the southern rangelands and anywhere I go, is that you get a really different mix of people. Um, so, yeah, I'm guessing at Rotham it was probably more of a traditional stock camp, young girls and boys, whatever, on horses. And then you might have had a few different characters on the floodplains, bull catching, Guessing it was probably all blokes and God knows what. And then, then down, um, gold mining or drilling, you probably had people that were not from the pastoral industry at all and could have been any age, size, shape, color, whatever. Like all these, I think that's the other thing that's really cool is how many different people from different walks of life and different experiences you would have been immersed in. And especially as a young person, like what a valuable experience to really get stuck by use that as a good word. With all these people and learn from them. Absolutely, yeah, 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 and to learn how to handle them in different environments too. I think you know, you're stepping into a pretty rough world in in some of that. Um, in those catching camps, I, I remember being told when I was leaving Melaleuca, my head stockman said to me, "He's like, well, you just be careful when you go to those stock camps or the bull catching camps. They can be pretty rough. Like sometimes I'll throw a bloody a tin of bully beef out on the flat, and the men have to scrap for it." And it wasn't far off it, I tell you now, in oh, some God. camps. Um, leaving Kalgoorlie when we were headed out to camp out at Mag- Mount Magnet, um, I remember my driller, he pulled up and he went into a bottle and we, we were driving an F250 or 350 or whatever, that massive truck. And um, he went in there and he had a huge shopping trolley, went around and he, I remember he bought 13 cases of beer um, put them through the counter, checked out, and we went back out to start loading them into the into the back of the truck. And I was thinking, God, there must be a big camp up there, a lot of men to drink all that in a three-week swing that we had. Once we finally had them all loaded, he turned to me, he's like, are you going to buy something for yourself? <laughs> I thought, what? And fair dinkum, he got through them all. He just, Wow. And he wasn't sharing. He, he just loved the beer. I just, yeah, I love the mix of people you meet out in the middle of nowhere and yeah, what I've always loved about the southern rangelands is is that the places I've worked at, it's more of a harvest operation. So you usually have you mix of backpackers from different countries, but then there's just randoms from farms, but from farms down south or farms of east. And you've got all these generic 
like old men that, you know, were maybe a farmer once or they're an ex-copper or they're this or that or you've got some grey nomads there or stations I stayed on around Alice, they well, there was one and they always had grey nomads there, like they built facilities for them and we just meet people and, you know, this lady, they're like travelling around and she's doing the camp cooking and her husband was doing all this handyman stuff but she used to manage KFC in like Mariba or somewhere. Just random people you meet that you wouldn't come across and how like and for someone so young like oh just that's so cool who that's so sorry I, I did have a point when i started asking that question i was going to say like where was your favorite and who was your kind of favorite group of people to hang out with throughout that year oh. no pressure because they're all listening to um, but was there a place where you felt you kind of just it's hard to narrow clicked? down because i've kept in touch with a lot of those people since yeah and a lot of those properties i've been back to um, the park I haven't in Queensland, but um, I did a lot of contracting up here in the top end for a while and so had great relationships with a lot of the guys that I'd worked with in the past um, and even guys that have come across from Queensland ended up in the Territory as well. Um, look, it's really hard. I, I mean, I, I started to learn to ride over at Rotham Park. I'll never forget that. Um, sitting on the tail of a, a mob of 1,500 head, uh, I had no idea what I was doing and, and sat back there on the tail with these two Indigenous fellows, Horace and Elliot, I'll always remember them. And, and they were the ones that taught me to ride initially. It was fantastic. Spent days on end at the back there yarning with them and, and you know, they're passionate about what they do. Living out in the bush, they were from Normanton, I think, from memory. Well, Kawanyama, from Kawanyama. Um, yeah, and then, you know, days days off, Sometimes a camp would go in, into town, have a day off in Cairns or wherever they wanted to go, Mariba. Um, but I spent a lot of time with these two blokes and we'd go hunting, go fishing. And, you know, I remember eating goanna off the coals, um, sitting in the river catching brim. It was, yeah, it was brilliant. Loved it over there. But then, you know, likewise for Melaleuca too, we had similar experiences there, but pretty big contrast and, and same down the west. Um, yeah, so hard to... Narrow one down and say that was the best. That's for sure. All right. Well, I'll let you. I'll let you off with not answering that one. Right. Um. Okay. So was that that was the last job you had before? Did you find it really hard, particularly being so independent and having? I guess there would have been structure, but in a way, no structure that year. You could kind of change jobs when you wanted. No two days are the same. Did you find it really hard to pull yourself back to to New South Wales to go to uni? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I was tossing up whether I should actually do it because when I when I was drilling, we were being paid a metre rate. I can't remember what the metre rate was, but it was big. And usually it probably wouldn't be that much pay, but we were making big metres. We were drilling good ground and making big money. As an 18-year-old kid, I was clearing over 2000 bucks a week. And so I went, oh, do I go to uni or do I stay here and hook in for a couple of years and get myself set up? And it was a hard decision. I'd rung home and spoken to a few people at home, but it was my brother who said, oh, look, uni is hugely valuable, even though, you know, you come out of it with a degree and whatnot. And he said he, he, he doesn't look at that as the most valuable part. It's the network and the mates that you'll make for the rest of your life that, is the most valuable thing about going to uni and, and to college. And so that was it. It sold me and thought, right, I'll do my last swing and packed up, went over to, over to Armadale. How did university go for you? As I just said, you know, you'd had this really unstructured, autonomous year, gap year, 
And if uni is one thing, it is not unstructured and autonomous. Yes, very true. Yep. I think right from the outset at uni, it was everything to be expected moving into college, I think, from what I'd heard from other people and the good times you're going to have and the mates you make. I loved it. It was absolutely brilliant. But I just I couldn't get my mind off the territory. I wasn't ready for it yet. There's more I needed to do. Um, and we had a couple of great people from the territory in college with us as well as Georgie Chisholm and Min Andrews. And so I loved picking their brains about growing world. up in the territory. Yeah. Yep. And um Georgie and Min, make sure you're listening because you haven't done your podcast yet. Oh, coming up. You wouldn't say no to my unborn child, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, sorry. Terrible guilt trip. Yeah, but it works. <laughs> um Yeah, and and so, you know, day by day, week by week, I I was going to lectures and going to tuition sessions and whatnot. Yeah, I, I just couldn't get my fill. I just wanted to get back to the territory. So, uh, uni holidays, I, I went back, back up north. So, it was only those couple of weeks that I'd go back. And then into my second year, halfway through my second year, I, I went to Annabaroo, which was sort of next door almost to Melaleuk, up up on the Mary, Mary River again. Um, there, three weeks, I was with a couple of guys from uni and one of the guys who was working at Annabaroo full-time had snatched it he'd gone overnight and my manager said to said to us all he said oh i've lost my head stockman any you guys want to stay on my hand shot up straight away i said yep i'm here i'll stay on and so that was it i i'd hooked in there i i tried to study externally for uni um but back in those days we weren't connected to any sort of internet it was just woeful i'd, I'd come home and open the computer and, and load a page and go and have a bogey and come back and that page would still be loading and so it just it just didn't work so I deferred it then at that point and um, focused on being in the north and, and loved it. Uh, I think from the early days, you know, those couple of months of mustering that I'd, I'd had, I had watched Chopper Pilots mastering cattle and, and just absolutely fell in love with that. I thought, nah, I do want to be a pilot. That's what I want to do. And so I was dead set keen on that but didn't know quite how to do it um over all that time every time i'd meet a pilot i'd pick their brains and and humbug them and uh you know ask me how they did it what do you got to do to do it and i i reckon every pilot i spoke to they said oh it's not an easy life mate like you, you go and fork out a hell of a lot of money to get your license and then you know third year pilots are only on 30 grand a year and i thought oh that does sound tough um, still wanted to do it and they said, yep, yeah, well, if you're going to do it, just make sure you've got the experience. You want at least six years on the ground. You want to be at least a head stockman before you go flying. I thought, okay. And that was pretty common advice. I got that from a lot of, a lot of pilots and so that was my focus and I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the experience and save the money along the way and go and do my travel licence and start flying. I'm just surprised you lasted as long as you did at uni, to be honest, because you're not the only one. I think many people listening can relate to, you know, want something, wants this part of the world or any, I think, to be honest, it wouldn't matter if it's the north or southern rangeland, central Australia, you know, that corner of um, south, southwestern corner of Queensland, wherever you go, station country, once you go somewhere like it, you can't go back. Like things are forever changed and it's really hard to go back to life. I call it like life before and life after. Mm. So I'm really, I am, I'm surprised that you made it that far. That was a good crack. Uh, and then you couldn't 
couldn't help it. You had to come back. So, so the, the next plan was to, to come full circle from what your guidance counselor told you you couldn't do and you shouldn't do and become a pilot. But instead of top gear, you wanted to be the, the Tom Cruise of the mustering camps, which let's be honest, uh, some pilots may or may not have a God complex and, uh, that may or may not be because some are treated that way by some staff. <laughs> Says me, who's with a pilot. Yeah. Uh, I always <laughs> said I'd say. never date a pilot. I'm like, oh, f- boys of the sky. That's father of my child. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to kind of wrap up here, I think, because there's, as I said, this is going to be a multi-part series. Now that everyone's listening to it, I am going to say – Munro, I think it's just Munro Hardy on Instagram or Carbine Park. Go and follow him, comment on his posts and harass the shit out of him to be like, make sure you turn up for parts two, three and four. Let Steph record the podcast before she has the baby because I'm going to need help here, guys. It took me this long to get episode one and we need – you guys don't want to wait six months for the next episode. You go away tomorrow, you're back – what is this? First of April, I think it said, or third of April or something. I've got it written down. Post that, yeah. I'm gonna put a, of April. I'm going to put a, a phone reminder in my phone and I'm going to message you on WhatsApp, which you never open anyway because, you know, you can see when people have read your messages on WhatsApp and I think someone's screening my messages for us to record part two. But Because uh, I just think that this wraps it up nicely because I know when you were doing your licence, you kind of had to leave agriculture for a while to make that happen. But I, I wasn't expecting something you just said then. The advice you got, which I stand by as well. I mean, obviously I'm not a pilot, but know many because they are pretty common. You'd think like, oh, there's not many of them. No, they're, they're everywhere. They're like That was weeds. the other thing I was told. There's more helicopter pilots than assholes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Most of them are as well. No. no. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, guys. Uh, but, yeah, that, that uh, advice of – be really good on the ground before you. And I know there'll be people that disagree with me, but I just think you can't. It's like, it's like anything. Like start from the bottom, work your way up. Make sure you've got that good foundation of experience on the ground. 100%. And yep. not, and not just a year in the stock camp. But so does that mean you did six years or did you kind of do six years doing that and other things, but before you got your license? Oh, that and other things. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, the stock camp wasn't where I was going to save money. So yeah. Yeah. Did turn my hand other things. But, yeah, spent spent years in cabs and contract mustering and fencing and yard building where I could just to save a bit of money doing that. Brilliant. So, um, that's, I guess, everything we'll get to in covered in a lot of country two. over those years. Yep. So, for everyone, just so I've got Monroe here and he has to commit on the spot. Part two, I'm thinking we're going to kind of cover the years where you got your licence, um, where you were in and out of agriculture and also then when you were a pilot because I think when I first came across you – I don't know when it was actually, but I think you had a bit of an Instagram following and you always posted pictures flying or you were always in a boat fishing somewhere. I think this must have been when you worked for Heli Muster and you are based at VRD. You were just always in a bloody dinghy. Actually, <laughs> it was because right. I was I would have been 2015 or 16 because I was in America and I remember sending a screenshot to a friend being like, who's this guy? Like, he's just like always posting this stuff. So, there you go. Long time. Munro has been a little bit of an Instagram star. Again, go follow him. Leave a comment. If you like this episode when you're listening to it, go let him know. Let him know that you want parts two and three. So, part two, we'll do that. We'll talk about your time as a pilot. And then part three, guys. Oh, my God. Munro all of a sudden left the territory to go to a very, very different job and and life, which you, actually I think you recorded it as a mini episode for us way back when because you wrote it as a blog. 
It might have done too, yeah. I think you did yeah. actually record it. So if you scroll way back, you might actually be able to find it. I think it's called Macro and Micro Isolation. That's it. And then now you've got the Nuffield Scholarship. You've gone into partnership in this crazy, cool business in Catherine. And you've just got like a million balls in the air and you're just juggling and doing all these cool things. And it's, it's a very cool journey. So at least three parts. I mean, we could probably do a whole one just on your Nuffield, like all the adventures you've had. You got to go to Africa. I'm really jealous. So, we agree, Munro. You'll be back in April for part two. Well, you've put the pressure on. Um, I know. What I'm happens if we don't any- get the comments? You still have to do it because what about my baby? <laughs> you don't. You don't want to be recording with me when I'm like three weeks out from my due date because I might be really grumpy then, or smelly, or I don't know. I might. You wouldn't do that to a pregnant lady, would you? Otherwise, how am I going to call my baby Munro? I'm just giving silent acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah, he's just like nodding my head, shaking my head. Awkward. So, final question though for this episode: Looking back on, I guess, this period of your life, I usually say looking back on your story so far, but we'll just focus on what we've spoken about in this episode. What would you say was the major takeaway lesson for you? biggest thing you learnt in those 12 months or more adventuring around? I think I always had that attitude but I suppose learnt to back myself with it and trust your gut and, and lean into it. Have a crack. 